Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You're listening to Campus Killings, brought to you by Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Hi, Megan. Today's episode is an old case, but I think you'll find this one interesting as it deals with the death penalty, as well as looking at the criminal justice system in a time before Miranda rights. I think we're going to have a lot to discuss about the evolution of our criminal justice system. But before that, let's orient ourselves in time and place. Ohio State University's College of Veterinary Medicine was founded in 1885 when the university realized that a large portion of the state's wealth centered around livestock and farming. The university saw a need that they could fill by creating a veterinary college and they opened their doors to students in 1887. By 1915, it was a four-year higher education degree By 1915, they offered a four-year higher education degree, resulting in a diploma with a DVM, which is a Doctorate of Veterinary Medicine. Since its inception, the college has graduated over 8,000 DVMs, and today the school has over 100 faculty, 300 staff, and takes around 750 students between their undergraduate and graduate programs. So it's a pretty elite school. But even since its inception, it was such an exemplary program that it attracted a young veterinary hopeful named James Howard Snook. Born in 1879 to a farming family in South Lebanon, Ohio, James Howard Snook knew firsthand how important it was to properly care for livestock. James was in one of the first classes at Ohio State's College of Veterinary Medicine, graduating with his DVM in 1908. Shortly afterwards, he got a job working as a faculty member at Cornell University, but he quickly missed his hometown and he moved back to Ohio. And this is where he was hired by his alma mater as a professor and an equine surgeon. Sources say he was quite renowned in his field and he also invented and patented the snook hook. And this was a surgical tool that is even used today when spaying and neutering pets. In the midst of his busy life, James was also a hobbyist pistol shooter who went to the Ohio gun range several times a week to practice. But Megan, his talent went far beyond the hobby as he was so good that he qualified for the U.S. Olympic pistol team and he won two gold medals in the Olympics of 1920. So this guy's clearly got a lot of talent and a lot of drive. 
1922, James met and married a local school teacher named Helen Marple, and not long after, the couple welcomed a baby girl that they named Mary. By all accounts, they seemed like a happy family, with the author of his biography, Gold Medal Killer, describing the marriage as a good match. James seemed to have it all, a fantastic career, a loving family, two Olympic gold medal wins, a patent. What more could he want? But family support and collegiate success apparently were not enough for James Snook, as only four years after his marriage to Helen, he began an affair with one of the university's medical students. Fiora Hicks was 21 years old when she met renowned Professor Snook. How old is he at the time? James is 46 at this time, and you know, married with a two-year-old. Oh, interesting, because he was a little bit older when he got married and had a small child, for the times especially. I mean, for now, that Very, would be kind of yes. standard, but for then, that's that's different. I thought he was a bit younger. Okay. Yeah, you're right. He definitely was older, and I guess it's because of all his um, his studies and then being in the Olympics, right? But you're right, it is. I wonder if his wife was um, a bit younger. I'm not actually sure. Okay. But either way, getting back to Theora... To pay for her room and board at the university, Theora worked at the College of Veterinary Medicine as a stenographer when she did shorthand transcriptions of speeches, and she also did some dictations for James Snook in June of 1926. A few days later, on a rainy evening, James offered to give Theora a ride in his car over to her dorm so she wouldn't have to walk across campus in the rain. And though the drive was short, the two found that they had a lot to talk about since Theora was a medical student and James was not only a veterinary professor, but a practicing veterinary surgeon. There also seemed to be a natural romantic attraction as well. I, I'd like to point out, too, unfortunately, that this is this is something that I think we've both seen happen in our professional careers. And even when I was a student, I saw this happen with, you know, older professors who kind of seemingly mm -hmm. find some adoration from younger students and they facilitate what I would deem to be very inappropriate relationships. You know, this is like, a, well, yeah. well, to me, this is also a power control issue. And, and it's, you know, I think it's an abuse of power, but um, I, I suppose yeah. depending on the context, but it's not the most, you know, uncommon thing that I've seen happen. No. Um, over the next few weeks, James continued giving Theora rides to her dorm and to other stops around campus almost daily. And according to his later testimony, James claimed that much of their conversational topics revolved around sex, venereal diseases, and the benefits of what was known as a companionate marriage, which today we'd call a common law marriage or cohabitation. I'm sorry, but I've never heard of like romantic talk revolving around venereal diseases, but <laughs> that's that, that was no. a new one. I, my, I perked up on that, but okay. Practical concerns, I guess. I, Maybe. I don't know. I'm not sure. But and, you know, today we don't bat an eye about cohabitating couples. It, but at the time, it was not socially acceptable for unmarried people to be living together. And the, again, this is in the 20s. Right. According to James, Theora was also very open with him. And she said that she was looking for an older man as a companion, somebody who, quote, really knew something. Now, I would just like to reiterate here that we only have James' side of the story for many of these details. So there's really no way to know if Theora actually said these things. But at least from James's perspective, Fiora seemed not only interested in him, but also pretty sexually experimental given the times. So, Amy, this first of all, this seems to be uh, a relationship built. Uh, it seems like it's going to revolve around a sexual relationship from what you've said. But 
Do you have background on Theora? Like, do we know about her and I don't know, any background on her, basically? So I'll tell you what we do know about her. She was born in 1904 and she was the only child of Melvin and Joanna Hicks. Her parents had been married for over 20 years before they had her. And while the couple absolutely doted on their daughter, there was an enormous generational gap between Theora and her parents. Wow. Again, this seems strange for the times. Yes, also, right? it's just for the times. Like now it wouldn't be, but so interesting. Yeah. Raised in Flushing, Queens, where her father was a professor of music, Theora grew up in a world that looked very different from the Victorian upbringing of her parents' childhood. New York in the 20s was full of expatriates, new thinkers, speakeasies, mobsters, and women who were leaving their subservient roles to seek their own destinies. Mm. So it's not surprising that while Theora had a very close relationship with both of her parents, she was incredibly tenacious and wanted a life that was more than they expected of their only daughter. You know, there weren't a lot of career options for women who were disinterested in just being a wife or a mother. Right. And while this was starting to change a little with the dawn of the 20s, progress was very, very slow. Right. But regardless of the slowness of social change, Theora had goals for herself. She wanted to be independent and she wanted to do something amazing. So while all accounts suggest that Theora presented herself as quiet and unassuming, which would have been socially acceptable for a young woman of her time, beneath her stoic exterior, Theora had a restless, brilliant mind. Sorry, Amy, was she, uh, I, I know you said this back, was she a medical student also? She wasn't a medical student, but she worked at the medical school. So right. in 1921, she got her business degree. Okay. And she became she became an exceptional typist and stenographer. Okay. So remember I said she was, she was typing for this professor. Yeah, I just didn't hear what her degree okay. was. Okay, thank yeah. you. Um, she did want to pursue medicine, though. That was a goal of hers. So it was on her radar. After her parents retired to Florida in 1923, Theora was making enough money to support herself with her stenography jobs, and she then enrolled at Ohio State University to begin her medical training. So eventually she did go into medicine. Between semesters, she would go to Florida to take care of her aging parents before driving back to Ohio for her courses. Despite the distance, Theora remained close to her parents, writing them letters on the regular, and her father later recalled that, quote, in all of her visits and all of her letters, there was never a sign of any mental disturbance or any anxiety or trouble. Megan, keep this in mind for what happens later. Okay. Over the years, despite James Snook's public testimony, there is still a ton of conjecture about why Theora would have begun an affair with the professor. And although James testified that at least on their first few outings, Theora had no idea that he was married— she did know once their affair took off about three weeks after the two met. Sorry, speculation about why the affair began. I wouldn't put too much stock into that. There's a million different reasons on either party's side. What about um, him, though? Uh, had he had affairs before Theora? Um, there's no indication that he had affairs with other women, but they did find some love letters in his desk that had aliases and pen names. Most attribute them to Theora. But it's very possible that there were letters from other female students as well. Sure. So who knows? But to hide the affair from his wife, Helen, James began taking Theora to several of the Columbus area hotels, or they would take long drives out to the country at night in his Ford coupe. But this became difficult to keep up. So to create a more permanent and private meeting space, James rented out a room in a boarding house in downtown Columbus. 
where he posed as a salt salesman named James Howard, who was staying in town with his wife, Theora. Okay. So so they're putting a lot of uh, energy into this affair. And Megan, this would work for a long time, with Dr. Snook telling Helen that he was going to the gun range or staying late for meetings. He would then meet Theora at the rooming house where they would spend three to four hours together about three nights a week before James went home to Helen and Theora went back to her dorm. That's a lot of nights a week, actually, to keep up. (laughs) And Megan, this went on for about two years. Wow. So this was going on for about two years, this affair. And Theora reportedly loved riding in cars, so they would often just ride around and find a place to stop. So maybe this was part of the appeal for her. But nevertheless, the longer the affair went the less quiet it stayed until Dr. Snook was bringing Theora to the pistol range regularly and teaching her how to shoot. He also gifted her her own pistol for personal protection after her dormitory was robbed. People get brazen when they get away with things for such a long time. It's like a step, you know, okay, it's one step. I can do this. I can. It's just an attitude of it's just brazen. It's just, you know, they haven't been caught. So they feel braver about what they can do, but it often leads to Mm. them getting caught or their downfall. Yeah. Well, it's unclear at this point if people thought he was just taking a student from school out to show her a skill or if anyone suspected that the two were having an affair. And by all accounts, when everything did end up blowing up, which I'm sure you realize that's coming. Yes. James's wife, Helen, swore that she never suspected he'd been cheating, although it was revealed that Helen did, in fact, know because Theora would sometimes call the house looking for James. And Helen had talked to a lawyer at one point about her options for divorce, although she never went through with it. Okay. Anyway, but beyond the general falling away of their secrecy, there were also some potential red flags happening within the affair as well. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, But after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. There are two accounts of what comes next, one that James gave under oath on the stand and another that he allegedly told to someone, and these two were diametrically opposed. So it's not clear where exactly the truth is, but we'll try to parse it out as best as we can. What James did say in both cases was that that Theora wanted more and more of James's time the longer the affair went on. 
She wanted him to spend weekends with her instead of with his family. They often got into arguments when he'd use the weekends to visit his mother or take his wife and daughter on family trips. Fiora also began dating another man around this time. This is about two and a half years into the affair. And I don't blame her because he's clearly not leaving his wife. Of course not, no. She wants to move on, maybe. Fiora had met a young agricultural graduate student named Marion Myers. By James's account, Fiora saw Marion about three times a week, and on the other three to four nights a week, she would be with James. James didn't seem to care that the woman he was having an affair with was also seeing someone else, and James testified in court that Fiora often told him about the sexual escapades that she and Marion got up to, and it seemed that both men knew about each other. At one point in June of 1928, Fiora had gone to New York to take some classes at the Long Island Medical School, and she often wired James, which means telegrams back in the day, asking him to come visit her because she was lonely. But of course, James couldn't go. So get this, he claimed he contacted Marion and told him to go visit Fiora instead, to which Marion agreed, but only if James stopped seeing her. James agreed, and even when Fiore came back to Ohio, he kept up his promise to Marion and did not seek Fiora out. But as you could have guessed, Megan, this lasted a very short time. It's too bad these two, I mean, it's too bad this seems like a natural point where they could have, you know, mm-hmm. broken, gone their own ways, and still possibly they could have saved everyone's feelings and the tragedy that probably mm-hmm. came afterwards. Theora broke up with Marion in November of 1928, and according to James, Theora immediately called him at work to say that Marion was over and they could resume their relationship. And James was ecstatic, and the two of them found a new place in a different part of town, and they resumed their three-nights-a-week rendezvous. James went on to testify that around the time of their rekindling, Theora was taking classes in pharmacology and began experimenting with drugs to, quote, test the effects on herself. Some of these included cocaine and a tablet form of marijuana. There's nothing about this scenario so far that doesn't sound completely toxic, but okay. No, it's getting worse. Now we're introducing drugs into a toxic relationship. So let's see what happens. Later in his alleged real confession, James claimed that he was actually the one who was using drugs, aphrodisiacs, and sexual enhancements, but there was no indication that Theora was also taking them. But either way, despite their rekindling, James began to feel that Fiora was becoming more of a hassle than a good time. In his later confession, he described that, quote, her tantrums became more and more frequent and increasingly violent. Again, this is all according to James, but he described how nothing he did seemed to please Fiora anymore, and that on several occasions she would slap him in the face or slap a magazine or newspaper out of his hands and accuse him of not paying her any attention. Okay. Perhaps James began to see her less because of this, and she didn't like this. She started showing up at his office, demanding that he come and spend time with her. Other times after James had driven them back from one of their meetups, James claimed that Theora would refuse to get out of the car because she didn't want the date to be over. And she threatened that if James threw her out, she would, quote, go to my house and make things hot for me up there. James claimed that he was worried that she would blow their cover doing this and that he'd lose his job and be a community disgrace if word got out that he'd been having an affair with a student. But things came to a true head in the spring of 1929. On one of these days, James was playing a round of golf at a local country club. 
He was interrupted on the green because someone was calling the country club looking for him with a, quote, very important matter. But when he tried to return the calls, no one answered, so he went back to the game. But 20 minutes later, Theora showed up on the court and, according to James, was screaming at him for not returning her calls and demanded that he leave his game and go home with her. And just for context, this was in front of several other men that he was playing with, and one was a high-ranking member from the university. Yeah, this is terrible. Very bad. He relented when she refused to leave without him, and when they went back to spend time together, she continued to berate him and get upset that he would not spend the whole day with her. On the night of June 13th, 1929, their argument was starting to cool off, and James and Theora took a drive in his car, trying to find a secluded place to spend time together. They ended up parked in the fields not far from the pistol range that they liked to spend time at. According to James, he'd recently bought a new car, a blue 1929 Ford Coupe, and Theora wanted to try having sex in the car. Apparently, it was something they had never done before. So usually, apparently, they would drive somewhere, put a blanket down, and have sex outside. So this was the first time they were going to be doing it in the car. But the coupe's interior was quite small, and James testified that he couldn't perform under the circumstances, and it was, quote, unsatisfactory for both of us. Again, I'll reiterate that the rest of the information we have about what happened is all from James Snook's court testimony. So it is very one-sided, but here's what James said on the record as to what happened next. Theora was reportedly furious about his underperformance and wanted to try again, and she became enraged when James started the car and wanted to take her home. He explained to her that they had to call it quits because he had family plans over the weekend for Father's Day, and he needed to go home because his wife was expecting him. Theora allegedly cursed his mother and then threatened Helen Snook, saying, quote, Damn Miss Snook, I'm going to kill her and get her out of the way. This next part is a direct quote from his court transcript. This is what he said, quote, she said, you have got to help me out. She grabbed open my trousers and went down on me then. And she didn't do it very nicely. And she bit me and got hold of my privates and pulled so hard that I simply could not stand it. I got a hold of something out of this kit in the back seat of the car and hit her with it. I finally got her loose, very nearly twisted her arm off, and she sat up there a little bit and said, damn you, I will kill you too. She then grabbed her purse and slid out of the car. I was in so much pain, and when I tried to straighten up, all at once it flashed through my mind that she was getting out, and I knew if she got out, she would shoot me. So Theora had always carried a little pistol. Remember the pistol that James had gifted her? Apparently she always carried it in her purse, and he knew this. Theora never returned to the dormitory on the morning of the 14th, and her roommates called the police and reported her missing. They told investigators about her relationships, and the, the police first went to find Marion Myers, the young man that Theora had broken up with in November. But Marion had been out of state the night of Theora's disappearance. In truth, he had moved and was engaged to be married to someone else, so tracking him down proved to be difficult. However, the next day, on the morning of June 15th, two boys were walking out in the field near the pistol range and found a woman's body. Her skull had been beaten in and her throat had been slit almost from ear to ear. It didn't take police long to identify the body as Theora Hicks. Her throat slit is very different than being hit as well, especially in a claim of self-defense, you know? Yeah. By this point, the local papers had gotten a hold of the story and ran a piece about Theora's gruesome murder along with her high school yearbook photo on the front page. And that story reached Marion Myers. 
He actually came back to Ohio on the 15th in the hopes of finding out that the story was untrue. And the police were able to pick him up at his old fraternity house where he was staying with a friend. Marion was brought in for questioning. And even though investigators were were fairly certain right away that he had nothing to do with her murder, they still held him indefinitely without charges. Remember, this is a different time, right? Police had a little more power in how long they could hold potential suspects. And with clearly they had no evidence here. Right. But like I said, they didn't believe that Marion did anything. So who do you think may have murdered this young woman? I mean, James is next in line. I I assume they found out about the relationship with James pretty quickly as well. Yeah, because her murder made front page news and it didn't take long for the police to get a tip. In fact, only hours later, the landlady that James had rented the original place from came forward saying he recognized the picture of the woman in the paper but that her name wasn't Theora Hicks. It was Theora Howard. Right. She explained about James and Theora and being allowed to see Theora's body at the morgue. The landlady confirmed that it was the same woman who had been renting at her establishment for almost two and a half years. Right. So now it didn't take long for investigators to uncover that James Howard, the salt salesman, was in fact James Snook, the veterinary professor. Mm -hmm. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The drive to go further and reach higher. The same thing that inspires you, inspires us. At Strayer University, we're always searching for new ways to make education more affordable. That's why we offer access to up to 10 no-cost gen ed courses to help you save time and money so you can keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. No-cost gen ed's provided by Strayer University affiliates of your learning. Eligibility rules apply. Connect with us for details. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEF. On June 16th, three days after Theora went missing, James Snook found himself in the interrogation room of the Columbus Police Department. As a reminder, this is 1929, so Miranda rights aren't yet the law, and police and prosecutors were allowed to use necessary force in order to gain confessions. James was held for over 19 hours where he was severely questioned by several police officers and Columbus's lead prosecutor, a man by the name of Jack Chester. Now, I'm sure you realize here, Megan, it's a little odd that the prosecutor himself is doing the interrogation. But again, we're talking about a long over 100 years ago. It's also very high profile. So they probably bring the prosecutor in early, earlier. Mm -hmm. During these hours of interrogation, James was denied access to his attorneys until his defense lawyer threatened the prosecution. After this, James was granted three to five minutes with his defense team before he was pulled back into the interrogation room, where at hour 19, the prosecutor reportedly slapped him around until James confessed to killing Theora Hicks. So nowadays, things are different. You're not allowed to get physical with people in the interrogation room. You can't hold someone for 19 hours and you can't deny them a defense counsel. We weren't really technically allowed to hit someone then either. I mean, well... 
It wasn't as, yeah, but it wasn't as scrutinized as it is today. People don't realize they're right. But, you know, the case law hadn't yet really um, prohibited it per se, but I wouldn't say that it was permissible or I wouldn't say that it was legal to beat a confession out of a suspect. It's just that the Supreme Court hadn't yet weighed in on very clearly on this issue. Yeah. And he, yeah, he also didn't have a lawyer with him. So there was no advocate on his side to make sure nothing like this was happening. In the dictation he gave to the court stenographer, James detailed how they'd fought in his car and he'd seen Theora grabbing the purse she always kept her pistol in. So to stop her, he says he grabbed a small hammer from the repair kit in the car's back seat and hit her with it to stun her. However, he claimed the blow didn't deter her and he went on to hit her in the head with the hammer repeatedly until her skull fractured. As a vet, he knew this hadn't killed her, but there would be no coming back from such a severe injury so he then slit her throat with his pocket knife as to end her suffering. He then left her body in the underbrush before driving back to his home. Now, James's defense team argued that his confession had been coerced by the prosecutor's physical tactics. However, regardless of the way they got James's admission of guilt, the prosecution already had a signed confession. And for the 20s, they also had quite a bit of evidence against James Snook. Gotta tell you, uh, the explanation that he slit her throat it just doesn't bode well here. I don't think it fits very well with a self-defense narrative and no, putting no. her out of suffering, although that's a totally separate issue than procedurally what happened, whether I think that was okay. Or even a crime of passion. You know, it, mm -hmm. it's just, it doesn't fit with the narrative to me. I agree. What kind of evidence did they have? Did they have his car, blood? And, and, you know, I'm wondering what they had. I know it's 1929, so... Uh, they had a quite a bit of evidence, Megan. Okay. At his home, they found a pocket knife and a hammer with blood smudges on them. The inside of his coupe was covered in blood. Yeah. The suit that James had dropped off at the cleaners the day after the murder was found to have blood on the sleeves and trousers. The Actually, the cleaners had turned it into the police when they saw that James was a person of interest. Okay. They also found drugs that had been missing from the college's labs in James's locker at work. The reason why this is important is the prosecutor argued that he was using these drugs as an aphrodisiac. I'm not sure how that speaks to the murder, but okay, either way. So what do we think? Do we think this goes to trial or do you think James takes a plea deal? They did plea deals at the time, but they weren't as commonplace as they are today. I don't know that they would have offered him a plea deal, though, because the evidence seems very overwhelming and he confessed. So I'm not sure there's any incentive here. Well, it's interesting because it was the defense team who decided to go to trial because they felt they had a strong case for both self-defense and an insanity plea. And not just for James, but for Theora as well. Oh, so they were going to try to paint her as, quote, the crazy woman. Um, yep. They thought that. OK. All right. And on the stand, the defense's strategy was to use the couple's excessive fornication and some of their specific sexual acts to show that neither James nor Theora were in their right minds while having the affair. The defense painted Theora as a vixen who lured J James away from his wife, was a nymphomaniac, and then in the last few months of their relationship, her behavior had become so drug-fueled and erratic that James was terrified that Theora would shoot him and his wife and child with the pistol that he had gifted her. They argued that the collective insanity caused James to have a break with reality and killed Theora in a desperate attempt to keep her from shooting him in the last fateful argument that they had in the car. Sorry, they argued insanity, but also self-defense? 
Yes. Self-defense was, that's a hard, that's hard for the time as well, because self-defense at the time and up until modern day, self-defense had to be very immediate. So if he's arguing he was afraid she would do things in the future, that was not acceptable for self-defense at the time. That's correct. And um, I just want to go back for one minute to talking about um, the insanity, you know, the fact that, you know, they became uh, that they, that James had a break with reality and that Theora also had a break with reality. Okay. This was in direct contrast to the letters that Theora's parents had been receiving from her mm-hmm. that seemed to show no signs of insanity or distress at all. So take what you will with that. But mm-hmm. um, the defense also had Helen Snook, James's wife and James's elderly mother, take the stand on his behalf. But this tactic ended up backfiring as the jury sympathized far more with Helen being the scorned wife than believing her testimony that James was a good husband. I also find it interesting that Helen took the stand in his defense after what he was doing for so long. And James also agreed to take the stand and spent two full days on the stand being asked about every aspect of his, quote, unnatural affair with Theora, his relationship with his wife and his own sexual impotency. Despite the defense's tactic of self-defense and insanity, the prosecution had the signed confession and a mountain of evidence. Yeah. The lead prosecutor, Jack Chester, was also young, handsome, and charismatic. And his antics with the witnesses and his explosive arguments with the defense created quite the spectacle in the courtroom. So much so, Megan, that citizens would line up the night before to try to get a seat in the audience for when the court opened the next morning. Sure. I'm not surprised. We think like this interest in trials originated with OJ, but it long preceded court TV. Mm -hmm. And on average, there were between 150 and 200 citizens in the courtroom daily with hundreds more waiting in the hallways to try to get in during the Snook trial. On the day of jury deliberation, the courtroom was packed over capacity to hear the verdict. With standing room only and several spectators fainted from the press of bodies in the intense August heat. But luckily for the uncomfortable spectators, they didn't have to wait very long as the jury only deliberated for 12 minutes before coming back with a verdict. (laughs) 12 minutes. I mean, I don't know that I've heard anything less than an hour or two, maybe (laughs) minutes. Yeah. Guess we know which direction they were going in. Yeah. They came back with a verdict of first degree murder along with a mandatory order for execution via the electric chair. James's defense team was obviously furious about the verdict, citing the disastrously short deliberation as a sign that the jury had made up its mind despite presented evidence. Megan, I'm pretty sure they didn't do change of venue back then either. Oh, that I wouldn't know, but it doesn't sound like he got one. (laughs) No, definitely not. But while the defense immediately put in appeals for a retrial due to the prosecution's theatrical tactics and the fact that the court of public opinion was so obviously against James Snook, the judge overruled the appeal and James Snook was sentenced to be executed via the electric chair on November 29th, 1929. Wow. This was only four months after the completion of the trial. Now, today I can tell you the average stay on death row is about a decade So, again, there are a lot of things in this case that are very interesting to see how far we've come. Yeah. And the reason why we have the reason why individuals who are sentenced to death spend so long on death row is because of the mandatory appellate process Mm -hmm. that obviously, you know, James Snook was not given that opportunity, but this would never happen today. Right. And James's defense spent those four months filing as many appeals as possible to get his death sentence overturned. 
By November 22, 1929, the appeals had reached the Ohio Supreme Court and James Snook's death date was pushed back to January 31st of 1930. And this was to allow for more deliberations. But that's not very much time. That's just over two months. Yeah. However, only a few days after this announcement, the appellate courts ruled against the defense and James's final death date was set for February 28th of 1930. The defense would try one final time, taking the Snook case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. However, their appeal was denied again and James's death date remained the same. On the afternoon of February 28th, Helen Snook arrived at the Ohio State Penitentiary to walk with her husband to the death house, where the couple shared his last meal before he was ushered to the electric chair and strapped in. James Snook was pronounced dead via electrocution at 7.09 p.m. on February 28th of 1930. Remember I mentioned earlier that there were, you know, these two confessions or two diverging stories. So allegedly, he told a warden on death row that he did use drugs. Theora was not the one using drugs, that he was using drugs for sexual enhancement. And he also said that she had tantrums and that Theora was very violent towards him. Now, these points did not come out during trial. I don't think they're very relevant, to be honest. Um, I actually think it's bizarre that he would not have told, um, he would not have spoken at trial about her level of violence. But regardless, the stories are not divergent in like the fact that he said he planned this or, you know, uh, that slitting her throat was an act of vengeance. So it's not different in the actual commission of the crime, it sounds like. No, it wasn't. This, all right. This, so the stories did not diverge so much so that later on people would think something drastically different. And he was, in mm. fact, executed pretty quickly for his crime. Yeah, very quickly, I would say. Theora's parents had her body brought to her family plot in New York for burial on June 20th, 1929. And her parents would also be buried there later in 1941 and 1944. Though her father Melvin told the newspapers that their minds were at rest after Snook's execution, The elderly couple never really recovered from their only daughter's murder. The college forced the dean at the time of Theora's murder, David White, to resign, citing that he knew that James Snook had been leading a, quote, immoral lifestyle and had neither confronted him about it or fired him. Mm. Dean White was also subpoenaed by the defense, which led many at the college to believe that he knew much more than he told the investigators at the time of James Snook's arrest. Mm. The college issued a public apology to Theora's parents. However, there are no memorials or scholarships in Theora's name that I was able to find. I wonder if this is due to her, quote, a moral lifestyle by the standards of the time. Yeah, it's such a shame. It seemed like a it also seemed like a very blame the victim, you know, defense, yes. which is not surprising. You know, the defense has to work with what they have to. But, mm-hmm. you know, none of it's surprising. This is this is an all round tragedy. I don't know if the school designed any new policies, but this is why I really feel a policy in place at schools, professors should not date students. It's just that simple. Yep. It makes things easier. There really isn't, there's a power structure, there's an age, there's a conflict. There's just a lot of things I think that make sense. If they want to date later on after one of them is no longer at the school, fine, but it mm-hmm. seems just to keep things um uh, and I, w- I won't say easier, but it just makes a good policy sense to me anyway. I agree. And most schools do have those policies on the books now. Yes. 
While it remains unclear if Theora was murdered in a crime of hideous passion or if James had planned to murder her the night he took her for a drive in his new car, what becomes apparent in this case is the extent to which the city of Columbus, Ohio, could not fathom such brutality from a professor towards a young woman. Snook may have ended the life of the woman he was having an affair with, but at the end, it cost him his own life. If our listeners want to dive deeper into this case, the biography Gold Medal Killer by Diana Franklin and Nancy Pinnell is definitely worth the read. Before we go today, if you'd like to support Campus Killings, consider subscribing to the show with an Abjack Insider subscription through Apple Podcasts. Your subscription will get you VIP access to all the shows on the network that not only includes hundreds of episodes of ad-free listening, but also bonus content and early access to episodes. For only $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year, you'll unlock a variety of listener benefits and you'll be supporting this show in the process. Head over to Apple Podcasts and search for either Campus Killings or Abjack and you can start your subscription with a free trial. Your support is greatly appreciated. Thank you everyone for listening today and we hope you'll join us on the next episode of Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg with research and writing by Abigail Belcastro. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook at facebook.com slash campuskillings. You can also visit the show's homepage at campuskillings.com. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.